The Tommy Lloyd era officially begins tonight. The football team snaps the losing streak, but does it really count? Plus, the listeners ask, who's the greatest front man in rock and roll history? You're listening to the Wildcat Sports Report Podcast. Technically, this becomes the 50th edition of the Revamp Podcast. Last year around Christmas time, received the uh, microphone from my wife uh, to start podcasting again as opposed to recording it on the cell phone. I've actually recorded 52 of these. Uh, one didn't go up because by the time all the breaking news in the spring uh, concluded, there uh, really wasn't uh, time to run it. It was already dated. And then when you add that with uh, one that didn't go up because of some issues with my um, housing service, there's, this one actually becomes the 50th of the revamp the, that happened last December. Technically, though, it's actually the 52nd, and there's a few video-only ones. But hey, we're celebrating 50 which I don't get to do in real life for like a year and three months. Let's start with the Tommy Lloyd era. They get going tonight officially against NAU. Not going to break down that game because if Arizona loses uh, to NAU, we've got bigger problems just like we did in football. But the fact of the matter is expectations are all over the place for this team. I've seen Arizona ranked anywhere from 30th to about 70th. I've seen Arizona as a uh, top five seed. Uh, anything to being out of the tournament. Uh, looking at it, I'm trying to be objective here. And, and Arizona brings back a lot of pieces. They have a lot of interesting players. I think you can honestly say, and there's not a huge difference between this year's team and last year's team, but this is clearly, to me, the best team since the DeAndre Ayton team. And that was a pretty darn good team that rounded into shape late and then had the disaster against Buffalo. But if you look in the last three seasons, Arizona's lineups have been kind of patchwork. They've either been very young or they've been very disjointed. If you're telling me right now that there's not a chance Christian Coloco is a better center than, than Chase Jeter or... Jordan Brown, uh, I think you're mistaken. I think at the very least, you know, he's in that group. Uh, Tabellus, and granted, Tabellus competing with himself here, uh, is better than, than, than Ryan Luther. Maybe not quite as good as Zeke Nanji, but has the potential to be. You know, I think I'd take Ben Matherin over uh, Brandon Randolph or, or Josh Green. I know Green, NBA first-round pick, but he lacks some, some toughness. He lacks some clutchability. Uh, that two-guard position, I mean, the two-guard position has not been good the last few years. It's been some version of Coleman, Dylan Smith, Jamal Baker, Terrell Brown. You know, you're thinking maybe yeah, Dal- some combination of Dallin Terry and Justin Kyer should be better than that group. And even at point guard, well, you can argue that Arizona's actually had some of their most talented point guards the last few years with Brandon Williams, when healthy, Nico Mannion, James Akinjo. If... Uh, Kirk Creesa can be the game manager they need, the guy who can just distribute the ball, keep the offense flowing. Uh, you may wind up liking him better than those other guys. And I know, again, Williams was cut short to, due to injury. Uh, seeing what he's doing now in the G League has been pretty special. Nico Mannion was a guy who just never quite 
found the right rhythm at Arizona. I think he was a guy who wasn't clutch. And Akinjo dominated the ball. Akinjo's super talented and pretty good. So I think you could argue that Arizona across the board might be better at, at anywhere from three to all five positions than they have been the last three years. Now, if you want to go back to that uh, Aiton team, you know, you're hard-pressed to be better than the, at least the front line of Ristic and Aiton and, and Alkins. But, um, yeah, looking at it, I think there's a very good chance this is going to be one of the more talented teams of the last few years. That shows you, A, what Sean Miller is able to do by changing the recruiting philosophy to the international game. It shows what he was uh, you know, able to do uh, trying to navigate the potential sanctions. And I think it also shows uh, what uh, Tommy Lloyd has been able to do. While Tommy Lloyd has not been necessarily great in prep recruiting, uh, he was able to you know, keep Noel. He was able to bring in Adama Ball, who won't be an impact player this year, but I still like him long term. And you know, he has the kid Anderson signing in a couple of days here. But I think he brought in some quality and pretty interesting pieces through the transfer market, whether that's uh, Omar Bala, who I again think is a year away from really figuring it out, whether that's Pella Larson, who the indications are that he's going to have a nice role on this team. I like Justin Kyer. I think Kyer is maybe a little underrated. The ability to get Kim Aiken Jr. back in the fold after he was in the fold and out of the fold. Uh, I, I think it's a pretty interesting lineup. You look at what Arizona, though, has to do. They have to mesh it, certainly. They also have to be able to see what Tommy Lloyd really is. And that's the biggest question on this team. It's not the talent on this team, although I think, again, having questions about who Kirk Risa is as a point guard, who, uh, what version of Coloco are you going to get? Is he going to maximize it? But overall, there, there is talent here. And again, I think talent to be favorably finish in the top of the Pac-12. They don't have the same amount of talent as, as Oregon and UCLA, certainly. But I'm not sure there's a huge difference between them and USC. And I think they're better than most of the league. If Tommy Lloyd can be a good basketball coach, a good game management coach, because I really don't have a whole lot of questions about Tommy Lloyd running a practice, about Tommy Lloyd developing talent. That's, that's really his strength, to be honest. Those are his strengths. Those are what he does well. It's his questions are him as the head man, as the guy who makes those game time decisions of when to call a timeout, when to substitute, when to put the guy with three or four fouls back in the game, when to foul, things like that. Those are all going to be new to him and something he hasn't done since like high school basketball when he was coaching while he was a professional player uh, back in his early 20s. Then there's all the other administrative things, you know, when a kid is uh, having off-field troubles, when a kid is thinking about transferring, dealing with boosters, dealing with the administration. All of that are challenges, frankly, that can be the downfall of some coaches. You know, everyone thinks it's everything uh, between the lines, everything's on the court, but there's so much that happens, not even just away from the court, but away from the game of basketball that can honestly be the downfall of coaches. So how does Tommy Lloyd navigate that? Now, the, again, the good news, the thing I like about it, is essentially had the same mentor uh, for the, his whole career with Mark Few, although I think he was actually there for the Monson era a little bit. 
But Mark View's been his mentor, and for the most part, granted, he had the DUI this year, but Mark View's been a guy who's been able to navigate these things, has been able to build a program basically from scratch, and take a small school to levels that really not many schools like Gonzaga have been to, and then consistently kept them there. So I think the model is there. I think the mentorship is there. Again, unlike Jed Fish, who's had great mentors, but he's had nine of them in 20 years of coaching. There's only been one for Tommy Lloyd. So what are the expectations for me? I look at it, and and Arizona has some tough games in the non-conference, something you really couldn't say uh, the last couple years. You know, they've got an interesting Wichita State team that's in a bit of transition. I think that Wichita State team is, is probably not what they were the last few years, but still pretty good. Then in that tournament, they could end up facing Michigan, and Michigan's better. Uh, They've got an Illinois team on the road. They've got Tennessee on the road. And that really is an interesting stretch for Arizona. If Arizona can enter the pre-Christmas through the New Year's stretch in good shape, and that might be somewhere in the 9-2 range, uh, they've also got a pretty good Wyoming team on the slate. It should be like 11-2, and two, maybe with a loss to Illinois and Michigan, but getting the win over uh, Wichita State, getting the win at Oregon. Yeah, they got a weird early December game at Oregon and a weird uh, December second game with Washington at home. But if they enter a stretch that's a real meat grinder for them, they're at Tennessee, then Christmas, then on the 30th of December, they're at UCLA, at USC, and at Arizona State. Then they get a couple home games, Colorado and Utah, which, again, I think Colorado's decent. Then you go out to Stanford and at Cal. So they've really got six of eight on the road that take them into late January. And if Arizona can navigate that, if Arizona can, in that four-game stretch that starts with Tennessee and ends with ASU, go two and two, I think you'd be pleased. And then suddenly you're 13 and 4 heading into uh, the, the meat of the schedule with a gen. Again, interesting enough, only contains one game against Oregon. Um, Arizona plays six of their last, or seven of their last 10 at home. So again, you get through that stretch. You can, you know, even if you end up losing all your tough non conference games, at least, you know, the three against the ranked teams. You still feel pretty good about this Arizona team. And I think, again, I think that's a make or break stretch with those four road games. Because if you do go 1 and 3, 0 oh and 4, then suddenly you've really got to blitz the second half of the schedule. Conversely, you go 3 and 1 in that stretch. You pick off a Tennessee, a UCLA, a USC. Uh, you get two out of those three, uh, and suddenly you're in pretty good shape from a strength of schedule standpoint. I've mentioned this before, both here and on other podcasts. I really think the key to this Arizona team, other than how is Tommy Lloyd react, is the Kirk Risa. And not just Kirk Risa at point guard, but how does Arizona, because I think they're going to kind of run point guard by committee type backcourt, which we've seen a little bit under Sean Miller, uh, where you have several combo guards. You know, if you want to look, go way back, you know, when he had Momo Jones, he also had Kyle Fogg, who could handle the ball. You had the Josiah Turner, Nick Johnson. Even the Nick Johnson, uh, Mark Lyons backcourt was kind of a dual 
scoring guard, combo guard, backcourt. You know, when you had the York, PJC, Trier, Trio uh, at times. So I think you're going to see that because I think Kyer's a guy who can certainly handle the ball, certainly distribute the ball. I think Larson's a guy who can do that. And honestly, in a real pinch, I think Dallin Terry and, and Ben Matherin, while they'll never be lined up at point guard, they're actually going to be lined up on the wing more. Can, can keep the ball moving, can keep distributing the basketball and, can, and keep that offense flowing. So I think overall, you've got to feel good about Arizona. I don't think they're going to have that one. I don't think Crease is going to be the six assist kind of guy uh, most nights. But I think you could look at, especially that three-headed monster of, of Kirk Crease, Pella Larson, and uh, Justin Kyer as a group that together can have eight assists and hopefully only two or three turnovers, can together, you know, really distribute the ball. We saw a little of that. We actually saw quite a bit of that in the exhibition against Eastern New Mexico. So that's something I'm looking for tonight. The other one is, is can Christian Coloco move himself to the next level from a guy with a lot of promise to a guy who's starting to maximize it? And I don't need him to be all conference, but can he be a consistent 8-8 eight and eight guy? Can he be a 10-8 and eight guy? Can he be a guy who, when he has a mismatch, take over a game every once in a while? I really liked what I've seen from him so far, but want to see more of it. And then the big thing is, can the big two, Tabellus and Matherin, take their next step? Um, both guys had stretches last year where they looked like all-conference players. They both made the all-freshman team. Can they become consistent all-conference players? Can Tabellus become a 15 and nine guy. Can Matherin become a, a 15 to 17 points a game guy while still being a good defender, while still being a good rebounder? If they can do that, then this Arizona team gets very interesting because I think they have reliable depth when you've got, a, you know, a front line of Tabellus, Coloco, Balo, Aiken. That, that's four pretty solid bigs uh, there who can play a variety of styles. They can also, I think, go small ball. You know, Mather and Terry on the wings is, is, is a nice group. And again, that, those, those guards that Arizona has, again, has the potential to be very nice. And again, if they can get a, one more guy to rise up uh, and become a fringe all-conference type guy, then Arizona suddenly uh, is in great shape. Overall, I do. I expect them to finish top four in the league. I expect them to make the NCAA tournament. Last year's team looked like a tournament team. And I think this year's team is slightly better. Uh, while, again, you'll miss Akinjo, you know, really, they didn't have Jamal Baker down the stretch because of the injury. Uh, but I think overall, I think there's a better cohesion chemistry to this team uh, that I find interesting. Hey, the streak is over. Arizona football with an ugly 10-3 to win over Cal. And frankly, while I don't want to take anything away from these kids who've worked hard, I don't want to take anything away from the staff who's worked hard. There's an asterisk by it. And Cal missing 24 players, 10 starters, and Arizona barely won. And that's my point. If Arizona had gone out and won by 14 or 17, I feel a lot better about it. I kind of jokingly said, you know, they're 10-point underdogs. So if they can get a point per player missing and end up winning by 14, well, they end up winning by 7, then had to hold on with some weird penalties late. Uh, Cal just couldn't move the ball, couldn't do much. Now, credit Arizona's defense. Arizona's defense dominated that football game. But again, Cal without Chase Garbers, and, and uh, kind of shockingly how bad Cal's backup quarterback seemed to play. Now, he was missing some offensive linemen, too, which didn't help. But Arizona's defense was very good. But Arizona's offense struggled. And some of that was Will Plummer was hurt. 
Um, Will Plummer cut his hand. I think he suffered a shoulder injury. I think he had some other injuries. You had a Jamari Joyner who was out there on, on a bad knee. Poor Luke Ashworth came in with his one chance and had a deflected ball picked off. So Arizona scuffles their way to, to the victory. But I think we can all agree, had Cal been healthy, that Cal probably wins that game by about 10. Uh, I'm not super impressed with Cal, but Cal is the better team. Let, let's probably be honest here. Cal is a better football team than Arizona. That said, Arizona had to deal with their own set of injuries. But to me, that's the difference. I've seen a lot of people say, well, Arizona's on their fourth quarterback or fifth quarterback at times during that game. Arizona has injuries. But Cal's was different. Cal was the COVID thing. Cal was the COVID thing where several of the players who were held out actually had negative tests. But because they had one positive, even if they had two negatives, they were still held out because of uh, the rules in Berkeley. So I feel bad for Cal, whereas Arizona's that normal attrition you get with football. And I get it. Arizona, who already had a depleted roster, is even more depleted. And then you get your quarterback who, again, Will Plummer, tough kid, gutsy performance, dude deserves a lot of accolades, but at the end of the day, he's just not that good a quarterback. And when you compound that with having to move offensive linemen all over, I think at one point the left tackle was the starting center. I'm not sure how much he's played that tackle before. You had other injuries out there. But Will Plummer, not at 100%, is definitely not a great quarterback, but Arizona found the way to win. So credit them for that. It becomes a, a bit of a tainted uh, victory, though. But again, a few years from now, when you look at the record book, no one's going to remember that. The rest of the schedule is interesting. I think Utah comes in, a motivated Utah team who can win the South. They've got to beat Arizona. I think they will, unfortunately, for Arizona. I look at what you have. Uh, with Washington State, and although I think Washington State is a program in a lot of flux, they're better than Arizona, and they're actually playing pretty good football, even without Rolovich. And, and finally, you get ASU, and again, I think unless ASU's in absolute shambles with Herm maybe even being removed or the threat specter of him being fired, that's going to be a really tough game. As bad as ASU has played of late, they're still just better. And, and Arizona, again, with the depleted roster. Now, one thing I've wondered, and again, I've been hard on Will Plummer. I've been hard on Gunnar Cruz. I'm not in love with Jordan McLeod. Serious question for you to ponder out there. Something I've been thinking about is, how many games this year would Arizona have won with Brandon Dawkins? Brandon Dawkins, I think, kind of sums up Arizona's mediocrity at quarterback. Dawkins could do some good things. He did some bad things. Dawkins could put a pinpoint pass on a guy hit him in stride, and it seemed to be dropped, and then two minutes later, a wide-open guy in the end zone and miss him by 20 feet. He could run and move, not as well as Khalil Tate, who ended up replacing them. I mean, he put up some monster numbers. I think he scored 60-something in a win over UTEP, and then, you know, a week later had trouble moving the ball against some mediocre team. But I think Dawkins is certainly better than Plummer. I think he's better than Cruz. And I'm not sure who's better between him and McLeod. I think they're two sides of the same coin, where I think McLeod is able to make bigger plays and Dawkins is the safer quarterback. Dawkins rarely threw bad balls that were, were turnover prone. But I think if you had Dawkins, you probably have two or three more wins. I will say this. I think they beat NAU with Brandon Dawkins. I think they beat 
or have a ch- very good chance. I think they'd be Washington with Brandon Dawkins. There's certainly, if he stays healthy, even with McLeod, they had a very good chance against UCLA. I think at the end of the day, UCLA was just a little too good. Who knows what would have happened at USC game. So my guess is with Brandon Dawkins on this team, you probably win two or three games. And as it stands, I think Arizona is going to wind up being 1-11. But, but who knows? And now we can move towards next year. We're already, you got speculation because at least one, and maybe as many as three former in-state quarterbacks could be in the transfer portal. And suddenly we have transfer portal watch. My good friend Kevin Woodman, the big K-Dub, Uncle Kev, who used to host on 1290, had me on all the time there. When I put out what do you want me to talk about for the 50th show, he wanted to go back to the music. I guess he liked the Roth Hagar uh, debate we did last time, and I know where he sides on that. He is clearly a Roth guy. But he asked who's the best frontman in rock and roll, and who's the most underrated? If I'm going best frontman in, in rock history, I'm looking at a few things. I'm looking at, one, the ability to sing. The songs you got to sing, so your ability to either be a songwriter or contribute. Stage presence, charisma, cool factor, that whole package. Um, There are some people who are amazing singers who aren't great frontmen. I also think you have to front a band, so I wouldn't put someone like an Elton John as a frontman. Elton John's a solo performer. And I'm also sticking with rock and roll, because I think, again, there's a uniqueness to being the frontman of a rock band, especially a traditional rock band. So to me, it becomes a three-way race, all from kind of the same era-esque late 60s through the, through the 80s. And just missing the cut, I would say number three would be Roger Daltrey of The Who. I'm not the biggest Who fan, but when you combine his ability to sing, I sing a variety of styles, just that cool factor, it was hard to beat Daltrey. Number two, Robert Plant, Led Zeppelin. Again, maybe the, the template. Uh, for what a rock and roll frontman should be, you know, tall with the hair and the, the, the open shirts and the air raid siren vocals. But to me, the greatest frontman in, in rock and roll history, and this one transcends genres, time, it's Freddie Mercury, Queen. Freddie's ability to sing, I think, is, is second to none. Sing a variety of songs. Captivate an audience. Just go back. We've all seen it. The Live Aid, but he, you know, he did that through the years. The songs he could sing, the ability to just strip it down to a piano or play full-on rockers, just, just, yeah. To me, it's, it's Freddie Mercury. Now, moving forward, you know, I know some people have said, "What about Roth?" Go back, watch some some concert clips. Roth was not the greatest singer in concert. Amazing entertainer. You want to go, you know, Steven Tyler. I think is a guy who who should get a lot of credit. Moving into the 80s, if you look at the hair metal and hard rock then, I don't think there were a lot of great frontmen. Good frontmen, certainly. You know, you look at John Bon Jovi or you look at Joe Elliott of Def Leppard. You look at, you know, Steve Perry of Journey. Certainly, you know, you have some combination of great showmen, great singers. Um, to me, if you're going to talk best of the, the, the 80s, the hair metal, it's got to be probably Axl Rose. Again, not the greatest singer in concert, uh, but, but a great showman. Uh, you want to move into the 90s with grunge. The, those guys weren't necessarily great frontmen, no matter how good of a singer some of those guys were, like Chris Cornell. I think Eddie Vedder should get some credit. But to me, an under, some underrated guys, uh, some guys who probably don't get the credit, either because of size of the band, limited scope. Uh, of success, at least prolonged success. I think one is Coverdale. 
Uh, David Coverdale was a much, I think, better singer than people give credit for. A lot of his moves were ripped off from from Plant, but Coverdale was a pretty darn good frontman who continues to do it now. You also got to look at, and again, because of the showmanship, I think you look at guys like Alice Cooper, you look at the guys in Kiss, so much of that was based upon the stage show. But I would put, and again, I'm a fanboy, I would put Bruce Dickinson of Iron Maiden there. His ability to captivate a crowd, even now, in his 60s, Iron Maiden still going strong, selling out arenas in America, selling out stadiums uh, around the world. And if you want something a little more underground, a little less known, there's a band called Clutch. They've been around for a while. They're a hard rock, heavy blues type band out of Maryland. And their lead singer, Neil Fallon, is a guy who puts on a show. Uh, nothing flancy, no costume changes. Uh, no, you know, flag waving, no pyrotechnics, just a dude with his band, but he has almost this revivalist preacher ability, uh, when he gets in the crowd with a lot of, you know, gyration and handshaking and, and things like that. So I think he is a guy, and again, Clutch is the band I recommend everyone, they, they should be bigger than they are. If, if rock music was more prevalent, uh, I think it would be something uh, that people would listen to a lot more than they do, although they, they sell at clubs. And finally, shout out to Dave Grohl, who uh, is a pretty darn good front man, has fun with the rock thing that I think so many people have tried to get so serious with. He has a lot of fun with it. You know, he's the guy who broke his ankle and then finished playing uh, the tour on a throne. He'll bring up people out of the crowd. He'll bring out guest musicians to sing with him. So those are some of my thoughts, but at the end of the day, Freddie Mercury. Best front man in rock and roll history, but it is up for serious debate. I'm sure I'm forgetting 15 other people uh, that you could all argue with me. Tommy Lloyd gets started tonight. Maybe we'll have a chance to recap it later tonight. I'm going to actually miss the first half due to coaching some Little League. Arizona football gets that win. A little bit tainted, but hey, to all those players who won that game, to all those players beginning the next chapter, of their Wildcat basketball careers. And hey, to all you who uh, want to keep on rocking in the free world, bear down. <laughs> <laughs>